You are listening to Beyond the Verse, a Star Citizen podcast. A show dedicated to Cloud Imperium games, Star Citizen and Squadron 42. Whether you fight, explore, unite, and or trade, we bring you news, updates, interviews, reviews, and analysis. So sit back, relax, grab yourself a pour of Radagast, and join us as we go Beyond the Verse. Launch sequence activated. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Verse Star Citizen podcast with your host, Solace. And if it sounds like I'm a little bit uh, tired or less energy, it's because I am. I've been up since 2.30 this morning um, going after the Wave 3 CitizenCon tickets. So yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little worn out, uh, but proved for a really fun story, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Uh, we have a lot to discuss. Well, the number of things to discuss are, are limited, but they're, they're large items. So CitizenCon, um, we'll talk about some changes to 320 and the roadmap update. Um, and then the major drop today uh, of the disappearance or removal of Port Olisar in 320 which has a kind of a funny story tied to it as well. And then for the lore deep dive, we're going to surmise what the ending of Squadron 42 might be about. So last week we talked about uh, maybe the maybe how it will start out in 2945 and some of the events uh, and the attack um, that sparked Admiral Bishop and his uh, his speech to the Senate. And now we'll get into 2946 and, and his revenge, if you want to call it that. So a really high impact podcast coming your way. So let's let's get into it. And I think what better way of getting into it than story time with your favorite narrator, uh, Solace. So citizen kind. Oh, man. So where where do even I, I guess start? So wave one of early access was yesterday. It was Wednesday at our 11 a.m. So in Austin, Texas, so U.S. Central Time, 11 a.m. I was there, F5 keybind, whatever, bombing that website like everybody else. And there was a checkout error that occurred that was impacting at least everybody that I know. All my friends and content creators um, experienced this, this checkout issue. So you were able to find the tickets, whether on the CitizenCon website or through the event tickets on the pledge store, you're able to find them pretty easily. You were able to add them to cart, but the rest of the process was broken. So within less than a minute, you would hit check out. And I'm not talking about the 16K, like the 16K error of out of stock. Like that's not what I'm talking about. There was an error message that came up that said, like, there's no availability for your country code. And I'm sitting here, like, in America. (laughs) 
like what do you what do you mean like i can't even get the out of stock error message because it's getting hung up on something on the front end so like a good content creator <laughs> i went immediately to twitter with screenshots like hey what gives anybody else experiencing this and it was pretty widespread i mean there was a lot of issues um, star citizen robert space industries responded not to me directly but responded saying hey there's known issues we think we fixed it go back and check it out um, and at that point the vip tickets were were gone i mean there's a whole other story that goes along with this but the VIP, the VIP tickets were gone. So me and a few members of my organization, Soul Provision, um, we decided to go ahead and get a general access ticket. Now you had plenty of time to get a general access ticket. In fact, at the time of airing this podcast, you can get yourself a general access ticket. It's available to put in cart and purchase. So that's that's not an issue. Going to CitizenCon is not the issue. It's this pursuit of the VIP premier experience. Back to the story. So me and namely my brother decided to go ahead and get the general access ticket. Hey, we wanna at least make sure we're able to go. Um, we already got plane tickets, we already got hotel tickets. And so we got general access tickets. But of course, you know, we're, I don't know, suffering FOMO. We're suffering this idea of like, man, like, I don't wanna be left out, especially as a content creator, I don't wanna be left out of like subject matter that I would love to produce content for, pictures, videos, whatever. So that's some of it. The other part is I'm a collector, so if there's items that other people are getting that I can't, so there's there's a little bit of this playing in the background. So of course, even though I have a general access ticket, I'm gonna go back um, and at that point, wave two was at 7 p.m. US Central. So my brother and I specifically got him on the call. We're like five minutes before and we're, you know, F5ing and we've learned uh, and I can show you all here in a second because there's one more wave. But we learned that you can go to the pledge store, not the CitizenCon website, but the pledge store and have the subject drop down as event tickets. And that'll kind of expedite your process. You're not having to like scroll down through a bunch of narrative. It's going to be right there just like you by ships, right? So we're sitting in there F5ing. We're able to get the VIP ticket in our cart, but then we got the 16K error. That's okay. We're okay with that. Or at least I'm okay with that because half of the process is done. And so I'm spoiling a secret for all other listeners and viewers. I'm spoiling the secret. If you're able to get your item in the cart, leave it. Don't delete it, don't remove it, keep it there and that'll remove half of this entire process for you. So that way, all you need to do is accept the terms and conditions, choose your payment method and you're done. And that's exactly what my brother and I did for wave three. Three o'clock in the morning this morning, my brother and I were we're there. We're not F fiving because we're again we're in our cart, and instead we're just clicking like accept terms and conditions, scroll down, agree, accept terms and conditions, scroll down and agree, and we did that like five minutes going into three a.m. and me and him both were able to secure the VIP tickets <laughs> this morning at three a.m. So it it would spin. Uh, so my story is probably more optimistic than others 
that are listening or watching this podcast. And I want to be very, I want to be very mindful of that. I want to be respectful of that. This is not me boasting and I don't ever want it to be perceived that way. Um, there are legitimate reactions to this process, but if you're at all familiar with TwitchCon, Comic-Con, any of these big conventions, BlizzCon, um, there's not a lot of difference. I mean, you're able, other conventions, you're able to get put into a waiting room and the waiting room's the waiting room is randomized and then you're kind of given a number, but like, even that's not necessarily fair. It's just, it just randomizes who's there. So I think fairness as a definition is biased. It depends on who's feeling like it's fair or not, right? Their version of fair is going to be different. So you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, in my opinion. Um, Star Citizen has chosen to do this route, which we talked about in the last episode. There's no difference between a subscriber benefit and a concierge benefit. Uh, if you wanted early access, you pay 10 bucks that day and you're automatically a subscriber and you automatically get you know those perks and then you could just cancel your subscription the next day if you wanted to. So that's debatable. You can argue that all day long, it's fine. Uh, but I, I think any convention is going to be damned if you do, damned if you don't. So we got lucky. There's others out there who haven't. Um, what I'll tell you is the content creators I follow, probably the closest. We've all kind of been able to get our um, our VIP tickets. And my brother's not a content creator. He doesn't have a Twitter profile. Um, and he got his. So you can't really say that it's, you know, rigged in that sense. So I just, I'll end there. I, I don't want to go too far into this. Uh, we're already 11 minutes into the podcast. I think it's a fun story. We still have another wave coming up, uh, I guess, tomorrow morning at 3 a.m. U.S. Central. So if you haven't gotten your VIP ticket, this is your last chance here in the next, you know, several hours. When is that? For seven hours? In the next seven hours? So um, I got lucky. Brother got lucky. Um, while we're on the topic of Citizen Con, I do want to uh, I do want to share something real quick. And this is not part of the agenda. I it just it's something that I found earlier today. Um, if you're not aware, Citizen Con is actually a holiday inside of the of the lore. It's actually called Citizen Day, and I didn't know this. I I had no idea. Um, so I just wanted to share, um, I just wanted to share like what this is inside of the story. Um, and we'll, and we'll go on with the rest of the podcast, but it's actually called citizen day. And I'm sharing my screen for those of you on YouTube to the article citizen day is a holiday observed annually in the United empire of earth on October 10th. Now the, the, the event is later in October this year, but citizen day lore wise every year, October 10th. It was established to recognize the achievements of, excuse me, it was established to recognize the achievements of humans who have attained citizenship through civic responsibility, military service, altruistic work, or other positive and impactful contributions to their communities. It is also the day in which new citizens are formally recognized. The recognition ceremony takes place at the Citizen Day Conference, also known as CitizenCon an event held in a new city in the UEE every year. 
It was seen primarily as a bank holiday until 2734, when Galler Messer IX used xenophobic propaganda to turn it into a tool, boost military recruitment, and held lavish celebrations in honor of citizens' sacrifices for the betterment of the UEE. In the second half of the 28th century, anti-Messer activists on Terra used the holiday to recruit others to their cause. After the Messers' fall, the new Imperator Aaron Toy held the first Citizen Day conference in New York City, Earth, sold three, on 10 October 2793. I just thought that was interesting. Again, I, I'm not usually surprised when I come across these articles because I'm reading it and I'm trying to get things built out for the podcast, and I just stumbled across this. So just wanted to share it uh, in light of the conversation that we were just having <laughs> later on in this episode let's go this week in inside star citizen we'll go through the galactopedia update there's 20 short articles one full-length article uh, the banu translation came out this week so last week for alien week uh the banu um script was sent out hadn't seen a translation up to this point Well, we finally have the official translation we'll just read it quickly uh, we'll go through the roadmap roundup discussing some changes to 320 which will be alarming to some I think uh, and then we'll end with the future of Port Olasar in 320 so this is actually a very big event we might end up watching the YouTube video and reacting to it towards the end of this podcast because it is a very important about 13 minutes um, that's one of the biggest changes since the addition of the four systems right the R Corp the Hurston and the uh, our, uh, Microtech. So very important. And then, of course, we'll end on the Lord Deep Dive going into what we think is the end of Squadron 42. So the narrative team update. Let's go into the Galactopedia update. Sharing my screen for those of you on YouTube. So like I said, there are 20 articles, one full-length article. Uh, the full-length article is the Banu cuisine, eating Banu style. Um, I didn't really get much out of this article. I, not that it's irrelevant or insignificant. Um, I just, I don't, I don't think it's worth <laughs> uh, time on the podcast to really go into. It's a, it, it, it's a fun story. It's, it, it's neat. If you have time to go into it, go for it. But what I do think is interesting is the short articles. We do address uh, the Oso system. We do address the, uh, the Perry line systems, which is Gerzel and Yaman. Um, and then some very important individuals that we get introduced to that will lay the groundwork of future lore deep dives. So let's get into some of the short articles. And the first one being the North American Alliance. It was the precursor to the UNE. Just quickly, the North American Alliance uh, was a supranational political and economic union of multiple member states that were located primarily on the North American continent of Earth, Sol 3. Formed in 2189, it rose to help facilitate the sourcing and exchanging of valuable resources made scarce due to the unimpeded environmental destruction wrought during previous centuries. When Mars, Sol 4, was fully terraformed in 2157, member states held a summit reaffirming their intention to maintain the alliance. 
The NAA lasted until 2380 when it was superseded by the United Nations of Earth. Um, and I think the first, I, I know for a fact that the first, like, umbrella was the UPE, the United Planets of Earth. So it's fun to kind of watch the transition from, like, the umbrellas of, of ownership, if you will. So interesting there. Let's get into the voice of the commons, Amandit Vicario. Amandit Vicario, 2884 to present, still alive is a self-proclaimed spirituality leader, motivational speaker, and self-help coach. He is best known for his 2942 book, Enlightened Negotiating, and for his individual work with high-profile clients. Born on Terra, Terra 3, he attended a series of meditation seminars in 2903 where he experienced a spiritual revelation, in quotes, while laying in a sensory deprivation tank. So those are crazy, by the way. If you ever get the chance to lay in one of those, real life, it's trippy. <laughs> uh, it's 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 life changing, quite literally. Back to the article. This experience led him to self-publish his first book, Finding the Hidden You, which saw enough success that Vicario began a self-produced spectrum-based spiritual advice show. Costless visualization amassed a large following, eventually enough to land a guest spot on the show Something Every Tuesday in 2936. After this, his popularity skyrocketed, and he retired from his show in favor of taking on individual celebrity clients such as Elroy Cass and Magnus Tobin. At Tobin's request, Amandeep wrote and performed the inspirational quote series Moments of Clarity, which are played in the commons of New Babbage, Microtech Stand 4. I think we should all uh, recognize that if you've ever played in New Babbage. And let's talk about Something Every Tuesday. Something Every Tuesday is a weekly entertainment talk show hosted by comedian Eason Landari. Essen Landari? Either way. Each episode opens with a monologue that comments on current events and then segues into interviews with a series of celebrity guests. Landari has used the program to invite little-known musical acts, comic performers, and authors to allow them to showcase their work. It first aired in 2934 in a Tuesday late evening programming slot and was moved to an earlier time in 2935 after Landari's easy rapport with guests and a few surprise hit sketches helped it earn high ratings. So that's, uh, I, I love it. Uh, I would love to see, and this might be the intent, but I would love to see this like integrated on the screens and on the PA systems while you're playing. Like it'd be really cool if the game knew that it was a Tuesday and you could see some of that playing at like your local bar. All right, now I'm just kind of getting ahead of myself, but how awesome would that simulation be? How awesome would that like role playing experience be? I mean, I would totally invest in that. Gadaveras. Gadaveras, 2887 to present, is the senator of Low Coral Three in the United Empire of Earth. After serving in the UEE Army for 15 years, Varus earned his citizenship and ran for a seat on the Governor's Council of Low under a campaign promise to decrease taxes on middle and lower income individuals. 
He took office in 2920 and while on the council, joined a committee that successfully pushed through a 3% decrease on income tax planet-wide. In 2941, he was elected as Senator of Lowe, as Senator of Lowe on the Centralist Party ticket. Since taking office, he has continued to fight for lower taxes and has helped craft several consumer protection laws that decrease the amount of data that can be harvested and sold without notice. Gattaspear headed a campaign in 2943 to decommission the maximum security prison quarter deck located on Kellogg 6, citing a history of human rights violations. Although the proposal was ultimately unsuccessful, political commentators expect Gata to try under to try again under a more favorable political climate. And that should be familiar because we talked about quarter deck several Galactopedia updates ago uh, and how it has an impact on Pyro and how we're going to see that very soon. The Oso system location of advancing civilization. The Oso Systems Affair Chance Act protected planetary system that consists of an F-type main sequence star, three terrestrial planets, one gas giant, one ice giant, and one dwarf planet, discovered in 2861 by amateur explorer Errol Navis, Navi, Navis, who named it after his daughter, it seemed to be an excellent prospect for terraforming until a young civilization was detected on Oso 2. Barred from their development plans, some surveying corporations leaked their planetary assessment findings to the press in an attempt to convince the public that it was the United Empire of Earth's duty to open the system. From these leaks, a popular movement formed in favor of uplifting the intelligent Os uh, Osoians. Ultimately, the Senate chose to invoke the Fair Chance Act and set up a permanent military station to keep the system safe from potentially uh, unscrupulous visitors. Some tongue twisters in that article. What I'm going to do moving forward is just read about the system. I'm not going to go through each one of the short articles of OSO. So the OSO system we just read, there's OSO 1, 2, 3, 4. And then there is the orbital station Chimera, OSO 5, OSO 6. So let's get into the Gerzel system. Gerzel system is a developing planetary system that consists of a K-type main sequence star and a vast protoplanetary disk. First discovered in 2539 by human explorer Dehanzel Kosoko, after he spent three weeks scanning the Hadrian system, <laughs> It was discovered again in 2542 by Xi'an explorer Nese Ruoth via a jump point from the Rial system, a stronghold of the Xi'an military. Break. That's going to be difficult moving forward. Um, reading Xi'an and knowing like how to speak about it or to it is going to be difficult for somebody like me running a podcast. Because, like, it, it's literally R period I L apostrophe A. The real law, the, the real law system. It's going to be hard. Y'all are going to need to bear with me. <laughs> Back to the article. The UEE government responded by incorporating the then Odara system into the Perry line and changing its name to Gerzel after an ancient human deity of war. 
Following the fall of the Messers and dissolution of the Perry line, Gerzel was placed under UEE control. The Senate debated placing the system under the protection of the Fair Chance Act, but ultimately decided against it. Today, it is inhabited mainly by miners, salvagers, and scientists engaged in the long-term study of early planetary system development. There you go. Love reading it. Gerzel system. That's actually the first time I've heard of and read about the Gerzel system. So pretty cool. That only has the Gerzel belt alpha additional article. So let's move on to the Yaman system. The Yaman system. Let's go with Yaman system. That looks good. <laughs> the Yaman system, also known as the Hadir system, is a planetary system in the Xi'an Empire that consists of an F-type main sequence star, three terrestrial planets, a dwarf planet, and an asteroid belt. Discovered in 2529 by navjumper Ai Sei Chowan, it was designated as a supply system for the Xi'an military and placed under its protection. In 2531, it was rediscovered by human explorer Tessa Morrison when she traversed the Baker-Yaman jump point and encountered a Xi'an military escort team. This incident led the United Planets of Earth High Naval Commander Gian Peria, uh, Gianna Perry to propose that Xi'an systems connected to the UPE be placed under control of the Navy in case of an attack. It became the first system to form the Perry Line and humans renamed it Hadir after an ancient human war deity. Under the terms of the 2789 Akari Kray Treaty, it was ceded to the Xi'an Empire and reverted to its original name, Yemon. So it looks like the Xi'an got their territory back, or at least their rights to own it. It's good. I think I'm, I think I'm on board with that system, or with that idea. Uh, we've got the... The Yathul, Yatho, this is horrible, guys. The, the Yathlul Yatho, the Yathul Sienyo, and those are just, one is Terraforming Collaboration Site, and one is Violet Skies. I don't know how to say them, but they're just additional parts of the system. <laughs> okay, let's get into, I mean, I'm not even gonna try to say this. The the Hui Hui Charlie Hi I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is bad, y'all. Uh, there's a resource center for local terraforming projects. Let's just not even say the name. The name I can't say. It's the Yaman Belt Alpha. It's an asteroid belt in the Yaman system. So uh, these these names are ridiculous, and I am screwed as a podcaster moving forward. But there you go. There's the Galactopedia update for, uh, for for this week. I need more whiskey. <laughs> Alrighty. So anytime that we're able to get into uh, more lore and introduce more planets, obviously I get excited because there there is the intention of having multiple Stanton systems, right? The idea of jump pointing into Pyro and into these other. Um, these other systems just excites me, right? The potential of just being lost uh, in a system with nobody around that can find you. I, I just love that idea for some reason. So now that I'm done butchering all of it, <laughs> let's go to the let's go to the Banu transmission uh, translation. So here we go. My goodness, I already know that I'm tired because of CitizenCon. 
And then I just tried to talk Shion to everybody. All right, here we go. So like I said um, last week, there was a Banu transmission in the Banu language. It's always fun to like go and and attempt to do it yourself. Don't ever read the comments underneath because it's more than likely jokes. But here we go. This is the actual transmission, uh, and it's about the uh, eight ball fidget spinner. It's about the Tholo. So how to use it and what it says. So it, it's a little, um, I don't say underwhelming. That, that's, that's not the right word I'm looking for. It's not that it's underwhelming. It just uh, maybe anticlimactic. Um, you know, it, in some way, like there's a, a deep, deep, deep part of me that's like, Hey, maybe they're going to announce the Banu merchant man <laughs> in the Banu language. And that's how we're going to find out when it comes out. So you won't, when you have that deep seated, um, idea in your head, reading about the Tholo falls in comparison, but what it translates to is congratulations on your purchase of a Tholo. Must you now decide how your fortunes will next branch off in different directions? This tool will promptly counsel you from Kassa, the Arbiter of Luck. We, the members of the uh, the Jasi, religious soli, guarantee that our Essosoli has prayed to Kassa to, quote, use this Tholo to speak the truth. Each purchase of a Tholo doubles as valuable offering to Kasa, so you will be sure to get extra good luck. And then there's like how to use it and the possible answers of stay, reconsider, and run. So like I said, you could go down and scroll through all the feedback and it's, yeah, the second comment. Wow, that was very anticlimactic. I mean, it's it's funny that I say that and and it's backed up by one of the first comments. So... Um, but again, I need to lower my, I need to lower my expectations or at least keep them within due bounds because they're probably not going to release a launch date for anything through a, a different language. I can't imagine any developer wanting to do that. Also on Tuesday, no, we're actually on Wednesday now. So moving on to Wednesday, we have the roadmap roundup. And so... Um, there's been a couple of changes and I'm going to read through the roundup first and then we can kind of talk through things that might have fallen off of the radar. So here we go to the article, sharing it on YouTube. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Every two weeks, we accompany the roadmap update with a brief explanatory note to give you insight into the decision-making that led to any changes. Awesome. Same thing every time. The following card has been added to release view in the Alpha 320 column. New missions, salvage contracts cover up. So this is not consignment. This is salvage contracts cover up. Players will be contracted to strip the gang markings and paint off of a ship that was used in a crime that the gang doesn't want to get caught for. Security forces will also be searching for the ship to confirm and prosecute whoever committed the crime. So that was mentioned in last week's Inside Star Citizen that that went over the, the, the missions team and the things that they are going to be adding or looking forward to forward to doing. So the salvage contracts cover up. It's cool to see that kind of added as as something 
that we will see in 320 that we weren't expecting weeks ago. Back to the article. The following features have passed their final review, therefore we are toggling their status to committed. So these are actually happening. This is what they're committing to. And it's all Arena Commander. So Arena Commander, the front end update, new racetracks, New Horizon Speedway rework, the new dogfighting map, Jericho Station, the new elimination map, Ecol, the new dogfighting map, Winner's Circle, and then my personal favorite, the new map, Security Post Korea. So we will see a bunch of additions uh, to Arena Commander. And again, when they came out with the, um, what was it? Alien Week, we did the Vandal Swarm. Me and a, a couple org members, we did the Vandal Swarm. And it's the first time since the Pirate Swarm um, that I was in Arena Commander. And I forgot how much I enjoyed it. Because you don't have to like board a ship and take off with it. It puts you in the fight immediately. And I forgot how much I appreciated that. But then at the same time, when I was done with it, I couldn't wait to get back into the PU, the Persistent Universe because I like taking off. I like landing. I like the realism of the simulation. So I have a feeling, like, for me personally, I'm going to go back and forth between Arena Commander and the PU quite often. But the more maturation that occurs in Arena Commander, um, I think the more fun that this game is ultimately going to become. It's kind of a taste for everybody. And last but not least, Ship Trespass. The team is taking additional time with this feature in order to further flesh it out. So we're not going to be getting ship trespass. They're taking additional time uh, and accounting for additional edge cases and to solve as many issues as possible. Therefore, we are removing this card from release view temporarily until we add our next major release column. So ship trespass, this is what I was referring to. Um, I... I thought it was a. I thought it was an awesome. Um, I mean, it, it still is. It's not going away. It's just being delayed. So I need to be careful with like how I word it. It's um, it's going to be crucial in the way we play Star Citizen. I should not be able to go onto someone's ship, um, or if I do go onto their ship, there should be repercussions. And it should be what they're lining out. Like what they have envisioned for ship trespass is the right answer. Um, so we need it. We absolutely need it, especially with the launch of like the whole sea. And we start getting into these massive storage runs um, or logistical runs. Like you're going to want more law, like changes to the law system. So this is going to be important. And so I think quickly that was all the changes to the roadmap, but I actually want to get into the roadmap um, and talk about the actual release view. So without further ado, switching over to screen share, boom. So let's just drop everything in uh, 320. So these are the tentatives. Well, it's really just the new missions retrieve consignment. That is still tentative. And then the committed we already talked about with the arena commanders, right? So nothing here that is new. Uh, th there is a tentative arena commander experimental game mode. 
right? So we talked about that. We actually watched the Inside Star Citizen that mentioned it. Uh, but the experimental game modes is like whatever the devs want to throw at this this mode to try out a weapon system or a tactic or strategies. Like that's what they're going to do in the experimental game mode. Should be a lot of fun. And then of course more arena commander committed. And then here's your salvage contracts cover up as tentative. Right, so there's your change. And then for ships and vehicles, it should still be the same thing. Misk Hole C is still tentative. Um, my unpopular response to this, however, is I'm surprised that it's still tentative. It makes me nervous that we've got all these committed for Arena Commander, but we don't have the whole C committed. So that is alarming to me. I don't know if it's going through its gray box testing or white box testing, whatever phase it's on. Um, I don't know if they're having problems with getting it approved or not. And then last, the wheeled vehicle handling improvement. So just wanted to go through and make sure that's on everybody's radar. Okay, transition into a very, very depressing topic. Um, and, and I will like, let's react to the inside star citizen video together. I think it'd be fun to watch and it, I think we're going to watch it because it is so important. It's the biggest change aesthetically, at least in the year that I've been playing this game, they're actually removing the orbital station, uh, port Olisar in crusader. And so I, I want to, before we get into the video, I, I, I kind of want to talk about a very, um, it's a very upsetting story from, from I guess, Twitter, from, from my Twitter feed. So I asked a couple of days ago, first off, here's the story. This Week in Star Citizen comes out and it says, for Thursday, you can expect an inside Star Citizen that will talk about the future of Port Olisar in patch 320. So I read that with no context. I'm like, man, I hate that place. There's like no medical bay. You can't spawn from it. Um, I I personally hate going to it. It actually makes Crusader as your home planet area really hard uh, unless you're going to choose Grimhax as your spawn point. And so I put up a poll in jest that was, you know, the question was, what is what is the worst orbital station in Star Citizen and why is it Port Olosar? And the four options I gave for answers were all for Port Olisar. And it sparked a little bit of a debate. It sparked, you know, conversation like, how dare you, sacrilege. And I think it was all LOLs and all kind of fun and jest. But I had originally intended that to just be a fun conversation starter in preparation for this, um, for this announcement. And then today's Inside Star Citizen happens. And it's... Uh, it sucks because like I remember that that was one of my first experiences. If y'all remember from like episode one, I started playing with my friends in Star Citizen back at Invictus launch week last year, which was in Crusader. So I remember going to Crusader, making uh, Orison my home um, and, and living out of Orison and going to the orbital station, um, Port Olisar quite often so like i had this like anchor to this orbital station not to mention those who have played this game for eight years and and more you know this was the very first location 
that you could spawn ships out of, right? So well, let's go to the video. Let's go to the video, pay, play it homage, or pay it homage, and then we'll respond to it. But I think we need to give it its 13 minutes and really just acknowledge um, what is changing in the game for the better, but its impact it's going to have just overall on the game. So I think it's great for podcast listeners to just hear the narrative and kind of hear the whys directly from the source. That's always been Beyond the Verse Star Citizen podcasts, like, what what, what do you call it? Like foundational principle. Like I will always go to the source. I will not go through Reddit. I will not go through any other articles. Anything you hear from me is directly from the website. So this is appropriate in my opinion. So let's get into the video. I'm gonna screen share uh, and we'll, we'll go into it. Here we go. Port Olasar was first introduced alongside the persistent universe in Star Citizen Alpha 2.0. And it holds a special place in the hearts of many who remember those earliest days of Tessa Bannister comms array missions, and of course the old Big Benny's challenge. But as Star Citizen's development continues to expand and evolve life in the PU, Port Olasar has fallen behind in its ability to support the game systems of today, later this year, and certainly beyond. But now there's a new kid on the playground looking to take its role and its job, if not its place in our hearts. And it's scheduled to arrive in the upcoming Alpha 320. looks beautiful I want to pause it here it looks beautiful they um, they tried their best I'm getting ahead of the video but they tried their best to, to pay homage to the original Port Olasar so you're gonna see the rings it's just longer and you'll you'll hear kind of the why but it's gonna have the same um, play loops added to this as all the other orbital stations have as well so let's get back to the video Port Alisar was our first space station that we put into Star Citizen. It's gone through some minor changes, but for the most part, it's it's really stayed the same and just a quick, easy, get in, get out space station. When it was first conceived, basically, it was really just a, a way for the players to spawn into the solar system. It's also the number one place that content creators use to tour their ships. So that's kind of a funny aside. I'm going to be interested to see what, um, oh, what's his name? Subliminal. I'm going to be interested to see what Subliminal uses as now the orbital station doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so we had to think about how many habitation haves went in there. We had to think about the stores that were needed and then uh, a, a way for players to spawn in their ships. I think that people like it just because it's get in, get out, you know, and there's that kind of feel. There's no transit loops. There's there's nothing there that basically extends the timeline and gameplay. And for the most part, it has all the shops the average person needs, you know, armor shop, uh, FPS shop. There's a ship item shop there as well. 
I think the initial implementation of Port Alisar, you know, did everything that we needed it to do, uh, checked all the boxes. Um, but obviously, as the game has evolved and changed over time, like we needed to, to adjust it. We've added medical gameplay, we've added cargo, and um, unfortunately, Port Alisar doesn't uh, support any of those game loops, so it became apparent that we need to start investigating um, a way to change it or adjust it and, and bring it up to speed. Seraphim Station is um, the official name for what we've been calling Olisar 2.0. Uh, and I don't know why, but the name bothers me. So Seraph is an angelic figure that is in the Christian faith. Um, that's part of like the highest echelon of angels. So it's, it's kind of a religious overtone. Um, and so Seraphim is the multiple, that's the plural of of that so i'm trying to think like like what reference what reference are they trying to make with a religious term i don't know why that's bothering not bothering me from like a you know let's go debate it but like i i wish i knew kind of the why I, i'm a huge person when it comes to names i love naming ships i love like the why behind naming something so seraphim is kind of it's kind of bothering me right now but all right so back to the video <laughs> Uh, internally for quite a while now. What we initially set out to do is to create this really grand space station with a really fantastic sense of scale that players could have a really good time flying in and around and also to and from. So we had a really good time playing around with different design languages and shape languages that we could then use to come together for the final product. We were also working on lots of um, shape studies involving the silhouette of the station to make sure it was reminiscent of other stations and also to bring our own unique spin on it. Seraphim Station is an homage to Port Alisar in the way that it looks. We were keeping the rings, and um, but then it's also taking all of the existing Leo Station gameplay and bringing that over to that station. It's much larger and much more extravagant than anything that we've done before uh, in terms of our space station kit. But um, this is utilizing the kit in the way that we haven't before, and it's created much more unique identity for it than anything else, I think. Yeah, that's huge. I think the gameplay around it is going to be very cool, specifically just, you know, seeing it for the first time, approaching it. There's multiple uh, hangars, a few rooms all over the station, providing you with you know beautiful views of the planet uh, at the right time of day. Extremely large station, probably four to five times bigger than Olisar. So we have everything that you could possibly need inside. It has various sets of hangars and habs in the center of the first two rings. And those are going to be where players are going to be landing their ships, collecting their ships, and the general gameplay that occurs over there. Then towards the back end of the ship, we have the cargo area, which is going to incorporate um, that gameplay as well. So this is how we sort of mixed and matched all of these together to create something a little bit more unique. We also have docking. I, as an as an Amazon employee for 10 years, I hit 11 in November. 
my first job at Amazon was a fulfillment center operations manager. So like anytime they talk about like the warehouse or the cargo or any of that game loop, like that excites me. I, I don't know why. Like I can find myself completely negating like the bounty hunter loop. I, I don't necessarily like I'm not good at, at dog fighting. I'm just I'm just not. I know my limitation. <laughs> and that's and that's it. I'm great at FPS. I'm great at mercenary missions. But I think the the kind of the calm the calm labor of the storage missions or the cargo run missions, I think that's gonna be where where I settle down at. It's probably why my organization's called Soul Provision. <laughs> Back to the video. Tubes and everything else that players could need to traverse along this big structure. It has the medical um, clinic areas, it has cargo, everything there that's needed to support all of our uh, careers that are being developed and, and growing. The whole need for the station was that we're trying to have a focus on and introduce bounty gameplay into each station as much as we can. So each station also has a security dock integrated into it as well. That is going to be where all of the bounty gameplay is going to be happening and you're going to be directed towards that. And so it will be the replacement, so to speak, for Olisar. Um, Olisar is not going anywhere. Um, we know what a historical thing it is for the players. We will pay proper homage to it later. And we were trying to find ways to basically send it off. Um, obviously, I think if we did a new space station and just renamed it Port Alisar, the old Port Alisar that they loved, then just goes away completely. But basically, for right now, we need to remove it, and then we'll be putting in Seraphim Station in its place, and then in the future, we'll talk about what we're going to do with Port Alisar. I have a great idea uh, for it, and I think it's been shared uh, among some individuals on Twitter for sure, but I think you should crash that into a planet. Now, you can't crash it into a gas planet. Like, it makes no sense for it to go into Crusader, but crash it into, uh, and now that I'm saying it out loud, I don't know how it would ever get anywhere near any other, <laughs> any other planet, but make it a derelict site. I think that would be amazing. Like keep it space and size and just lawn dart that into a planet surface and just let us explore it. Right? Just just let it be one of those those javelins you can explore in Daymar. Like, how cool. How cool would that be? So the way that we set up our Leo stations, all of them are future proofed and allow us to add new modules to them via our internal transit loop and, and the way that we set up um, the object containers within the game and, and load. And this is also becoming future-proof for when we add new things um, to the station. Port Alisar, it was so small, there was no, no place to add or, or um, grow and there was no transit loops so that we can fill and um, block off or, or open new loops to uh, to get to new areas and with um, Seraphin this allows us to 
uh, continue that same thought process and to get everything that we need to give to the player in that area, either things that Ryzen is missing or um, things that Grim Hex might be missing. This allows us to, to basically make sure that the player has a local area um, and a local space station to acquire anything that they might need. So as new careers come online, whether that be a bounty hunter or um, uh, exploration or other things, this opens new ways for us to actually go in and new add new decks, new content. So Seraphin actually fixes all of that. The whole sea is coming, and with the cargo decks and and um, the gameplay that we needed um, to load the whole sea, we felt that this was the right time to introduce it to the game. I don't think you can say it's better station than Port Olso. I think like Port Olso has become a monument uh, to the players, and it's it's got its own value. That I think we try to honor that as much as possible. And I think we tried to create our own take on that as much as possible. So I think, I like to think that we ended up saying that we were all very happy with. Um, but I wouldn't say it is better than also on that. For marketing purposes, it's better. For marketing purposes, it's absolutely 100% three times better than also, statistically. So what did we learn this week? Well, we learned that Port Olasar's days are numbered when that new hotness, Seraphim Station, comes online in the upcoming Alpha 320 that it'll be home to all the present-day amenities and capabilities current space stations have to offer, and of course be better set up for future developments, cargo, bounty hunting, and all the other commercial and industrial gameplay systems that'll continue to evolve in subsequent patches later this year. We also want to give a big shout out to some massive bar citizens that have happened over the last two weeks, including those near East I'm actually in one of these Los photos. Angeles, Austin. Boom! All right. I'm right there. Look at this guy. Look at this guy just chilling. All right. <laughs> Paul's also in here. Let's see if I can find Paul. You got Boomer, right? So Boomer Fat. We got him. We've got... Uh, here's Jake Acapella, right? Uh, where is... Is Galactica actually taking the photo? I think that's the... Okay. So they got uh, Miss Buster. We got Buster right here. Where is Paul. Paul, 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 Paul. Where are you, buddy? I want to make sure I highlight them. Where, where is he? There you go. Way in the back. Here you go. Here's Paul. So just a really good photo uh, of the Austin, Texas bar citizen experience. Back to the video. In Montreal, Manchester, Frankfurt, as well as some absolutely enormous ones in Shanghai with roughly 1,500 people, followed by Hong Kong, and if I'm not mistaken, Incheon, South Korea coming up this Saturday, Paris the Saturday after that, and then of course, my absolute favorite each and every year, Cologne, Germany for Gamescom. It's a terrific way to celebrate a birthday, I can promise you that. And while we're talking celebrations, CitizenCon, the big live in-person event is returning after a four-year hiatus this year with a two-day event in my hometown of Los Angeles. It's your chance to meet your favorite developers and fellow citizens in person and pitch which ship you think should be made next directly to John Cruz's face, or, or even how you think a particular gameplay system should work directly into Todd Pappy's eyes. They're not allowed to leave. They, they legally have to stand there and listen. <laughs> 
General tickets are on sale today and you can check the website for details on the when and the what for. And as for me, it's that time of year where ISC goes on hiatus. We're gonna take a few weeks to recharge some batteries, give the devs a break from having to fake appendicitis every time they see me coming, and plot out the next <laughs> quarter's worth of weekly content. If you've been around for a while, you know what quarter three heading into CitizenCon is like. For Inside Star Citizen, yep. I'm Jared Huckabee. Thanks for letting us share the process of game development with you. We'll see you all here in about a month. Very cool. Yeah, so thanks for uh, hanging out with me while we watch that video. It's, I think the biggest takeaway for me is the, the future proofing. Um, <laughs> it was a Vorp, uh, Vorpal Robot. What's up, buddy? Um, it, it's the future proofing. It's the future proofing the, the space stations, and all of them have been future proofed. So it's this idea that that you you could add on, right? Um, he's saying I've got to finish it. So the reason why I didn't finish it just quickly, the reason why I didn't finish the video is because at the very end, uh, some of the devs had fun showing uh, Port Olasar crashing, like falling to its death. And we already kind of chatted about how it wouldn't make sense in a gas planet like Crusader for the crash there but um yeah it's it's just a fun it's a fun video that shows that and, and it's it's actually kind of sad like there's a lot of people making memes and little gifts and stuff on twitter um which which makes it a very depressing depressing topic um but yeah that's that's why i, I it, it's just the developers were having fun. It's not the actual story of what's happening with Port Olasar. That's that's why I didn't do it. But back to the video. Um, it's the future proofing that that is is the, is the point here. Um, you weren't able um, to future proof Port Olasar because everything was it was centered. Everything was in this like ball in the center, and the hangars were built around it, so you couldn't expand. Right, um, with all the other orbital stations, you can see where they could expand. You have long necks, and so if you needed to add additional uh, habitations, or if you needed to add, like they said, like the bounty hunter additions, where you're having to move people cargo, uh, you're going to be able to easily add those to all the other orbital stations. So this this makes sense. Now I agree with Vorpal Robot in chat. You, you need to crash it somewhere. It needs to become a derelict site somewhere so that you're able to play in it and through it. Like that absolutely should be the case. That That's how you would memorialize something as important as Port Olisar. Moving to our last segment, the Lore Deep Dive. Last episode, we set the stage for Squadron 42. We talked about uh, the Battle of Vega. We went through some of the first-hand accounts, and we surmised that when you start the game, you might start it either in the middle of the battle, or you're a survivalist, or you're just aboard the Squadron 42 fleet um, as one of the soldiers or, or Navy airmen. So there's not a lot of information, and I actually wanted to start on that point. There's not a lot of information on Squadron 42. So I made the mistake of not already having this ready, but it should be up now. Again, in this podcast, you will always get source material. I will never go to anybody else, even though they're credible. 
StarCitizen.tools is a credible source. Great content creators, love them to death but I don't want to be just a mouthpiece for other content creators. So when I think what is the story of squadron 42, I'm, I'm going to go to the website and the Galactopedias and the com links. So here you go. So if I go down to the game, there's actually a section called story driven campaign. And this is where I started my research. So you already hear in the first two or the first two words, you know, it's 2945. So that, that is the year that you're entering. So I've done my research around that year. Now we don't know in the game how long you're going to be playing. We don't know if it's a year, two years, three years, but we do know that the events that happen in 2945 are followed up by a March event called Operation Mandrake that Admiral Bishop leads in again, March 2946, that could potentially be the end of Squadron 42. So a lot of this without any information at all is kind of driven off of this uh, assumption. So the actual article inside of Squadron 42's website says, in 2945, the brave men and women of the United Empire of Earth's Navy fight Navy fight tirelessly to protect humanity, while dangerous aliens like the Van Duel are a constant threat along the Empire's borders. Outlaws and bandits often prove just as dangerous closer to home. These massive capital spaceships keep a vigilant watch over humanity's star systems, ready to launch squadrons of deadly fighters should a threat arise. You are one of these brave men and women. You'll serve alongside a vibrant crew, each with personalities and storylines of their own, while a dynamic conversation and reputation system allows you to define your character through your actions and interactions to craft an experience all your own. And that's it. Like, there's nothing else. <laughs> um, so you have to go to the Galactopedia which is what I'm doing for you. You've got to go to the Galactopedia. You've got to go to Comlink in order to get source material. And so that's where we start today's lore deep dive. Going into Operation Mandrake. So again, at the end of last episode, we ended on Admiral Bishop's speech to the Senate declaring war on the Van Duel. And obviously that has secondary and tertiary orders of effect, right? That's He's asking for military control. He's asking for a military budget. There's a lot of changes that take place between October 2945 and this event, March 2946. So let's go into Operation Mandrake. We'll go into this and then the actual Empire report about it, and we will call it a podcast for the day. Operation Mandrake. Also known as the Battle of Oberon was a 2946 UEE military offensive against the Van Duel. Led by Admiral Ernst Bishop of the 65th Battle Group, it took shape when the UEE Navy received credible intelligence that a large group of Van Duel was preparing to launch a mass invasion. Bishop dispatched a strike team. Sounds like something we would want to be a part of to sweep the system and engage the Vandul as soon as they appeared. While these forces engaged the Vandul in battle, the UEE's Retribution, which is a massive, badass ship, moved into position to block potential escape routes and then proceeded to destroy the remaining Vandul fleet, leading to a conclusive UEE victory. Let's just go straight into the Empire Report. Let's go. 
Transmission begins. Beck Russum. Good evening. I am Beck Russum here with Alan Nuevo. We begin today's Empire Report with breaking news out of the Oberon system where Admiral Bishop's campaign against the Vanduul has scored its first major victory. Alan Nuevo. That's right, Beck. The Battle of the Orberon System involved the 65th Battle Group and was led by Admiral Bishop aboard a new flagship, the recently commissioned UEE's Retribution. While there is currently scant public information about the ship, rumors about its existence have been around for months. UEE's Retribution's first action comes in the wake of recent, devastating Vandal attacks on Uriel, which left thousands dead or missing. Earlier today, Admiral Cedric Cochran held a press conference in Killian describing a decisive victory against the Vandal and confirming Retribution's role in the battle. Admiral Cochran stands before the podium during the press conference. Admiral Crockern. Operation Mandrake began roughly two days ago when we received credible intelligence that a Vandal clan was in the process of mounting a second attack on the Oberon system. Concerned about such a possibility, Admiral Bishop had detached a small strike team to sweep the system. When the Vandal appeared, these forces were able to intercept and engage the clan before it could attack another human settlement. While the advanced forces occupied the aggressors, Admiral Bishop ordered retribution into the system and to cut off any escape back to Vandal space. Once retribution was in place, the Vandal, well, they found themselves between a rock and a hard place, as I like to say. Reporter number one. What else can you tell us about Retribution? There are reports it's the largest capital ship ever built by the UEE. Admiral Cochran. Details on Retribution are classified. Right now, all I'm authorized to say is that personnel aboard the ship were very pleased with its performance during the battle. Reporter number two. Can you describe the extent of the Vandal forces? Admiral Cochran. The exact specifics are currently being analyzed. But from the reports I've seen, it's probably best to describe them as a medium-sized clan. Reporter number two. Does that mean a kingship was present? Admiral Cochran. No, though there were multiple capital ships reportedly destroyed. Reporter number three. What was the extent of UEE casualties during the battle? Admiral Cochran. Look, one life lost is too many in my book, but safety and security doesn't come without sacrifice. It's a simple reality that every member of the UEE Armed Forces understands, so yes, there were reported casualties. I will refrain from getting too specific until family is notified. That said, I couldn't be prouder of how the men and women of the Navy performed. This victory was only possible thanks to a team effort that includes everyone from the Starmen aboard Retribution, the rest of the 65th, and all the way up to us here at High Command. The people of the UEE should be proud of what their Navy accomplished today. And back to Alan and Beck. Beck Russell. Joining us now in the studio is military expert Jack Hayden. He's a consultant at the Center for Universal Security and author of Clan Brutality, which examines what little we know about the Van Duel clans that we find ourselves fighting. Based on what you've heard from your sources, what else can you tell us about Admiral Bishop's victory in Oberon? Jack Hayden. This was a successful operation in many regards. Essentially, Admiral Bishop got retribution in theater and gave it a test lap against overmatched opponents. 
I would expect the victory built confidence among his crew and gave them a chance to work out any kinks on the new ship before engaging a truly dangerous enemy. Beck Russum. So you don't consider the Van Duel in this battle to have been a serious threat? Jack Hayden. Well, as Admiral Cochran alluded to, this did not appear to be particularly developed Vandal clan, one that, had, that hadn't even accrued enough materials to build the framework of a kingship. That leads me to believe this was what I call a carry-on clan. They are not built up to, uh, enough to engage large-scale attacks, so they feast on areas weakened by previous assaults or clean up what stronger clans leave behind. Beck-Russum, it sounds like you are classifying this as more of a symbolic than strategic victory. Jack Hayden, not entirely. It does give the UEE a clear-cut victory against the Van Duel after the horrible events of Vega and the unexpected initial incursion into Oberon. I'm sure there are plenty of people among Imperator Costigan's staff and in the halls of the Senate who are excited by this outcome. I would argue that while this victory is good for morale around the UEE, it wasn't the entire motivation behind Bishop's decision to commit. Beck Russum. Then what was? Oberon is an unclaimed system and not under the official protection of the Navy. Jack Hayden. Oberon may not be an official UEE system, but it is still, very clearly, a human one. Having Oberon fall under the control of the Van Duel would be a setback in that regard. By establishing a presence in Oberon, the system can be used as a staging ground for a push into Vandal territory. The system has jumps into Virgil, Tiber, and Caliban, all systems that used to have UEE settlements. If Admiral Bishop wants to retake any of those systems, Oberon can now be part of that plan. Of course, I'm far from the Admiral's inner circle, and he has surprised me many times in the past. With there being so little verifiable information on retribution, it's hard to predict how the new ship and its capabilities will affect this war. Beck Russum, thank you for your time. Jack Hayden, you're welcome. Always a pleasure. Ala Nuevo. Coming up, residents of Lago call for the UEE to increase its presence in the Nexus system after a series of comm relays were destroyed by pirates. We'll ask the UEE has the re we'll ask if the UEE has the resources to aid this struggling system. That and more when the Empire returns. The Empire Report returns. I just went Star Wars on that one. <laughs> so so here's so that's just a couple of months. I guarantee you that's probably not the end of Squadron 42. But it's where our lore deep dive ends today. A major victory, if you want to define it as such. Uh, in a system that doesn't hold too much clout in the grand scheme of things, but it's one that allows us to have a jump, a jump point, like a jump off, a military term, like a jump point from that sense. It's 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 a way of looking at like you know the Horn of Africa. We use Camp Lemonier to jump into Afghanistan and Iraq. It's kind of the same idea. You have Germany uh, as an alliance. We would station in Germany so that we could have a closer proximity to where we were going into combat so it's kind of the same concept we have a great foothold into what we're calling vandal territory at the same time you heard me read the article about squadron 42 it has the potential to bring in gangs and turmoil at home so maybe you're fighting vandal in one act 
And then in the very next act, you're coming back home or you're going to a whole other system in order to dissuade or to deter um, another another force. Again, these are all just predictions because we don't have a lot of information at this time about Squadron 42. So with that, let's go ahead and wrap up this podcast for today. If you are still holding out on your Citizen Con ticket, you have one more chance here in the next couple hours, just under six hours. I wish you the best of luck. I look forward to meeting some of you in California in October. Until next time. You've been listening to Beyond the Verse, Star Citizen podcast with your host, Solus. Join our in-game organization, Soul Provision, by applying at www.robertspaceindustries.com forward slash orgs forward slash provision. You can get involved in the conversation with your questions, comments, or emotional outbursts by emailing us at starcitizenbtv at gmail.com. Watch us live on Thursdays, 8 p.m. Central at youtube.com forward slash at starcitizenbtv and follow the conversation over at Twitter and Instagram both at forward slash star citizen BTV. Once again, thank you for joining us. We hope this finds you well. Until next time, safe travels as you traverse beyond the verse.